Welcome to the Revenue Blueprint. This is not another sales podcast on tips and tactics. Instead, we focus on unfiltered stories from founders and early stage sales leaders on what it takes to build a successful revenue team. If you get just a little bit of value from this, we ask that you pay it forward by liking, sharing, and subscribing to the podcast. All right, let's get into the episode. show, we're welcoming David Campbell. He is the CEO and co-founder of Tropic. It's a company that automates software procurement. They were founded in 2019. I think you guys are around 200 employees, maybe a bit more than that now. Raised venture money from top investors like Insight, Founder Collective. David's also a lifelong salesperson. He was an early stage salesperson at BounceX, now known as Wonderkind, and has a lot of experience selling all sorts of deals. So we are very excited to have him on the show. Welcome, David. Awesome. Jason, Seth, thanks so much, guys. Appreciate you having me on. Excited to be here and ready to dig in. Quick backgrounds from the origin of this is a LinkedIn post that I made on third-party buyers. And I think maybe my ignorance on the topic kind of sparked an interesting conversation. I'd gotten some data points from various sales reps and sales teams that I'd worked with, and I'd shared those experiences. And it was really cool that David, CEO of Tropic, joined us and shared his thoughts. Also, CEO of Vendor and Sastrify also chimed in, and that got a lot of stirred the pot on a lot of topics that we're going to dive into today. So really excited. Yeah, you, guys, uh, you guys nailed it with that one. Huh? You got three CEOs out of the woodwork and a lot of shares and lots of comments. Poked the bear. <laughs> poked the bear. Yeah, the proverbial bear was poked. It was, and it, it just came from some organic conversations we were having, which came from another LinkedIn post. But let's talk about this procurement category and Tropic in particular. David, in simple terms, can you explain what Tropic does? Yeah, I think the simplest way to explain what Tropic does is we give finance teams at high growth technology companies the ability to control every dollar of their spend. And we do this with a platform. We also do it with a service. And I phrased what we do intentionally to say that is not their spend. It's every dollar that the business is spending. And at a moment like now, as anyone in sales, including myself, knows, this is a very big focus for a lot of companies. And our goal is to do this by creating visibility, but also by reducing friction and what can otherwise be a very high friction process, not just for the buyer, but also for the seller. And I think as a commodity is particularly tricky when it comes to buying and selling versus some of the other things that you might buy. Yeah. I think that all makes sense. So how exactly do you guys make money? So we get a flat fee. We're a SaaS fee based business, even for the service, it's a flat fee. We now have some bifurcation here agreements. We're, I think, relative to others in the category, we're very focused on the technology as a means of enabling CFOs to save money and control their costs pretty much. So all of it's flat fees though. Those flat fees are dictated very importantly by volume of suppliers and volume of spend. And I say that to preempt what I'm sure is a follow-up question. We don't get paid on savings. And I think that can create the wrong incentives. Even internal procurement teams quite often get paid that. And as anyone who's worked with an internal procurement team knows, that can actually hurt a deal for a buyer versus help. So are those procurement folks represent Tropic? Do they have variable compensation? How are they compensated? Mm -hmm. They do. So their variable compensation, by the way, we arrived at this by trial and error. And I'd be lying if I said in the early days, we didn't have a very straightforward, like on contract savings-based model. We just learned that through trial and error, that doesn't set Tropic up for success long-term because I know that there, I know firsthand from seeing the video you guys put out that there's some anxieties surrounding this category as a seller. 
there's also anxiety as a buyer. Like sellers have power here too, right? We're kind of with a symbiotic relationship. If every seller, we're not going to work with a company like this, then we have to suddenly, we're back on our heels and we have to reassess how we're going to deliver value. So what we found to be the most aligned model is one that is totally aligned with the CFO, right? So if you're focused on a contract by contract basis and you're saying like, every person on this team has to get X percent savings on a given contract. That's not actually aligned with the CFO, right? Because some of these contracts are going to be very strategic suppliers that you're going to need for the next 10 years. I can't even tell you how many times being a startup working with startups who buy other startups, it's like our CEOs are best friends. We don't, we don't want to hurt this really healthy relationship that we have. So the CFO is not looking at things contract by contract. They're looking at in terms of a top level OKR. And most of them have responsibility to their board right now where it's like, I literally have to take out like 30% of our cost. And if you look across the board on LinkedIn, tragically, all these layoffs and stuff that we're seeing, like that's usually a quick lever that a CFO will have to go to and pull because SaaS costs have them locked up, right? If we can align with that, it means that we're not necessarily focused on a contract by contract basis. We're focused more holistically. And that means that individual people on the team might be compensated for helping the customer realize that they have unutilized seats, right? This is something that's come up actually quite a bit because we offer SaaS management capabilities on the platform. People have asked, what about that? Isn't that taking money out of a sales rep's pocket? And being on the sales side, I'm like, it's not a good sales practice to have unused seats and just hope the customer doesn't notice and try to lock them in for another year because they're going to figure out and be like, what the hell, dude? Like, <laughs> we're, we're paying you all this money. We're not using this stuff. And you knew that and you didn't tell me. And then that next renewal, they might be trying to get out of the contract. So it's like things like that, which are not really strategic sales or strategic relationship management. If you're trying to push those agendas as a sales rep, I would never want a sales rep on my team to try and renew an account that had underutilized Tropic without saying anything about it. That's something that a person on our services team will get credit for is like figuring out that there's a rationalization opportunity. Another thing that we're being called upon to do a lot is identifying rationalization opportunities. Like we have all five of these project management tools. Sometimes we have three different teams using the same tool, but it's not on a master agreement, right? So those are all opportunities to save money that are aligned a high level account level savings goal, but not necessarily aligned with, can I get 20% off on the specifics? Now, with that being said, we obviously do negotiate agreements and I would love to hear feedback from people who've been on the other side of it. I do think that with traffic, we're delivering a much better experience than what I've heard from some others in the category. And if not, I'd love to, I want that feedback legitimately, because as I mentioned, we rely on you guys and we know that. But, but even in those cases, like we're representing the CFO and it's like, you're going to, if you're a sales rep and you want to go directly to the CFO who doesn't necessarily understand your licensing model, doesn't understand your products, hasn't worked with you on a hundred other accounts, it might actually be harder. Sometimes it's, but we all know the CFO lever is, I'm the CFO, give me 30% off or you're dead. And, and we're going to be more nuanced than that. We try to trade in the things that we know matter to you. So we do negotiate, of course, uh, and that does lead to savings. But we know that the approach can't be a scorched earth approach. We know that it can't be, I know you can do better than this, so do better than this. Because if we do that enough, you're just going to step around us. We're not going to be working together next year. And we're going to look bad for our customer. Right? So... There, it's delicate, but there's a balance, I think, that sustains the success of this category, and it does rely on collaboration. So I think there's like kind of two pieces. One, we know another vendor that has 
the incentivizing, or at least from my understanding and speaking with folks, incentivizes this kind of the procurement representative, which another, I got some interesting DMs from that conversation behind the scenes. One of them said, hey, they employ failed sales reps on a power trip to beat up sales reps on the procurement oh, side. Yeah, that is incentivized. Awesome. It was interesting to get incentivized to discount. And that creates this kind of like toxic dynamic. Now, toxic for salespeople, maybe nobody cares. Is it okay if it represents the company or the buyer? Maybe they do get better discounts and I don't know. But one of the genesis of my topic was a CEO saying, never if these third-party buyers are involved, because as soon as they get us in a discount for one vent, for one of their clients, they're going to do it for everybody. And that was one of the, some of the questions that Jason and I, when we posted asking for questions was about that is like, how is that kind of leveraged internally? How is that fair? Is it, oh, we know we can get this much discount here. We're going to give that discount to every, we're going to expect that from everybody coming in or a kind of seller that we deal with. Like, how do you navigate that? And it might be unique to you, but how does Tropic handle that? Definitely. Knowing the actual price of a tool is one thing, right? And this is actually something that I've felt passionately about for a long time, even when I was on the sales side, is that the way that we approach sales, I think, should be more transparent. Like the fact that, not to name names, but I've been in a room with- There's only a few names to name. I've been on the other side of sales, I should say, and I've been in a room where someone said, hey, let's see if we can sell this contract for 10x what you're asking because it's this logo. Let's just try it and see what happens and we close the deal. And that's not anyone's, any one person's fault. That's not to get way on my soapbox, but that's like the VC ecosystem and the economy that favors growth at all costs. It's like the only thing that matters is top line growth. So do whatever it takes to get it. And it's created, I think, this totally broken market. Like I can't think of anything. First of all, we're not going around sharing pricing with everybody, but I can't think of any market where it's illegal to tell somebody what you paid for something. Like it's crazy in a way. And like, I think that certain tools should command a much higher price than others because they have a much higher. And I think that we should just be more direct and transparent about that in general. Now, I do think that, and people have asked me, but if someday Salesforce goes crazy and sues you guys, first I would say, we're not actually doing anything that they could sue us for, but great. I would love to be in a courtroom talking about why I think we need more transparency in this ecosystem and how it's actually better for the seller and not worse. Now, with all of that said, Knowing a price doesn't actually matter that much, right? If I called Salesforce and I was like, hey, my buddy down the street is paying less, the rep would be like, what do you want me to do about it, dude? I have to make you 10 chains of command to influence the price on this agreement. It's not as simple as just knowing that there's a better price. And maybe for a, an earlier stage supplier, like I've certainly been on the other end of that where it's like an RFP and it's like, hey, the other guys are coming in lower and knowing that causes us to lower the price. But if it's your own price that's being thrown in your face, you're not the rep that gave that other price out, right? You may not have anything to do with it. That's not, in my view, particularly helpful. And that's where I think this whole space can go sideways. If there's a heavy emphasis on, I'd have the benchmark, give it to me. One, you're probably not going to get that price because it doesn't work that way. And two, you're going to piss everybody off. So what I think is more valuable is understanding what actually motivates a supplier to give you a better price if that's what you want. So understanding... How does the sales rep get paid? Is it better to get everything up front or does it not matter? Is it better to get a long-term commitment or does it not matter? Is this an early stage company that really needs case studies and has no marketing presence? Like those are the things that my team is trying to do is like really get to the bottom. Not everything is going to be a win-win. It just doesn't work that way. Sometimes we lose, sometimes we win, sometimes it's win-win, but 
That I think is a lot more important than knowing the price. What's a lot more important is knowing what's relevant to this particular supplier, what's going to help this person succeed in this deal, and can we trade in that? And this is actually one of the things I reacted to in the initial videos. I think somebody, I think in the comments section said, or maybe it was actually you, Seth, I can't remember, but somebody said the third party in question was dragging the deal out. And I'm like, I'll, I would fall out of my chair if I heard that somebody on our team did that because it's like opposite of what we want to do. Like we know that if there's a Q4 discount, like we need to get this in Q4 to get that discount. And that is to the advantage of our customer that we do that. So like we want to accelerate. And one of the other things that our, the reps on our team are copped on is actually contract throughput. So they're motivated to move these deals quickly to get through as many of them as they possibly can. The higher the number of contracts that you can handle in a given time period, the better your pay. So that is something that feels about as close to aligned with all parties in Babel's media. And we just would, we just ask for, and we'll straight up tell you too, hey, this is what we're trying to do here because this is what we have to hit as a target for our customer. And we can get this thing done a week from now. Can you guys give us a 10% off? If we can bring it into this quarter and not have a hit next quarter, can you guys work with us on that? I, I recognize I'm painting a rosy picture. Like obviously sometimes there's friction inevitably. I don't want to sweep it out of the rug, but like, that is legitimately what we're trying to do. We're trying to make it feel to our customer like an Amazon style experience where it's like, I select the licenses, I click buy, and then I get a signed contract with the things that I want. One of the things that I was curious about is, and that's the initial conversation, Jason, that we spurred our conversation that got this whole thing going was, are you a consultant to the buyer for buying various products? And so if I, can I come to you and say, hey, I'm looking for this type of security software or something. What do you recommend? What are the different, because isn't that, and we're going to get into the genesis of your business and kind of those, yeah. where it came from, but is, is that now, how much of that is the business model? Yeah. Yeah. So it absolutely exists now. The reason that it's not our core business model is that we found that B2B SaaS companies know in a lot of cases what they want, but in a lot of cases they don't. Like when it's time to buy a CRM, you're going to buy Salesforce. We know that. If you're looking at product analytics tools and you're wondering like, there's a lot out here, like what is really the difference between what they all do and that kind of thing. We will try to help. And this is why, to get back on the soapbox for a second, I think that philosophically what most of this industry is actually trying to do is trying to push the supply side to the brink, right? Trying to get the prices as low as possible, create as much leverage as possible, introduce brick, so that ultimately the easier thing for you to do is just convert into a pay-to-play marketplace option, right? And say, all right, I'm just going to, let me just give you a percentage of my and let you sell them for me. That's something that we don't do. We don't collect any revenue from the supply side at all because we think that it introduces bias into this equation. And if you really want to be an arbiter of justice and you really want to help the buy side and the sell side, you can't be on the take for some of them and not for others, right? So we're not, we can't be influenced that way, but what we can do is just speak from experience. And we've worked with you a bunch of times. We're going to know your stuff better, right? And, and it, if you're wondering what to do with Tropic, it's good to build a relationship with a rep at Tropic. Like you might see it on a couple other deals. You might, you have, you might have a new product that you want to get in front of the customer and you can't get to the decision maker and you can throw that stuff at Tropic, right? Because we're sitting at the center of their process and we don't want anything from you. We just want to look good to our customer. And that's like a good way to use us. And especially right now, if you have a cost takeout opportunity, if part of your sales motion is taking out cost elsewhere, and by the way, it almost needs to be right now, right? Like, I feel like everyone's pitch needs to be about saving money somewhere. It's going to make us look really good to take that to our customer and be like, 
hey, did you know that Zoom Info actually has a sales intelligence call recording platform too? And it's actually free with their package. Might not be as good as Gong, but it's going to save you money. Well, we're not going to tell you it's better or worse, but we're going to tell you, hey, this thing is out there. And we're hearing about it a lot from the people that we have relationships with with these companies. Well, Sharing other options. That's really yeah. valuable. Yeah. The, can you walk us through a typical sales cycle for one of your customers where when does the deal hand it off to you typically? What's your involvement from there and how does it, how do you take it to completion? Yeah, definitely. So I'll tell you the ideal state and then I'll tell you what also happens in our suboptimal states. Well, the ideal state is that we're brought in at the very beginning so that we can like ride shotgun. And if you think about, I've sold through a lot of procurement teams myself and like the ones that I really actually liked working with were the ones that were attached at the hip with the buyer. They were there throughout the process. They were getting the business case, analyzing it together. The ones that I hated were the ones where it's kind of, which is rather rare. It's very rare. That sounds like a dream. <laughs> it's been getting better. Tech in general, the reason that we had such a successful go-to-market is because tech in general has been so slow to adopt procurement. Usually when they do adopt it, it's too late. It's somebody who's really old school and doesn't get it. And it's the less than optimal scenario of throwing the deal over the fence. Oh shit, by the way, you got to talk to the procurement team. I almost forgot. And you're like, oh, cool. So... They're going to take an ounce of blood for no reason and then and then hopefully going to close the deal. So in an ideal scenario, we get involved earlier. We're able to enforce that a little bit better because we are trust advising the customer and also because the CFO is now the decision maker on everything at most companies. The CFO can say, hey, you should you need to get this thing submitted so the traffic can kick this off 90 days ahead of time so that we can actually take our time and get it right. Usually what happens is we're getting involved maybe 30 days ahead of time which is less optimal, but we can still work things. We do, we train our team up similar to how a good seller would work. Our first call with the supplier is usually discover, discovery call, right? Just like before we, because this is one of the ways that I think this category can go really wrong is if the person on the third party buying side doesn't understand the deal, right? If they're just like, here's a contract, we'll get a better price. So we like to be like, talk me through the deal, help me understand what you really need out of this and things like that. We kind of work through that process together. And then every once in a while, we'll get something thrown over the fence at the last minute. And then we have to get on a call and be like, I know, I'm sorry. We don't like to get involved this way either. It is where it is. It didn't get submitted to the last minute. So let's work together and see what we can do. In the first and most optimal scenario, we're helping guide the decision process. And I'd say that realistically, that probably happens like 25% of the time, although that number is starting to be. In the second category I described, we're really just helping with the commercial part of it and also the approvals part of it, right? So one thing that's key to what we do is like getting the deal done on your timeline requires like making sure that InfoSec is done on time, making sure that finance is already signed off, making sure that everyone that needs to see it has already seen it. And we can navigate that for you. That actually happens with automation on our platform and we have visibility into it. So we push through all that stuff and then get the agreement done. So that's what most of it is like. And what we're what it probably looks like to the seller is we're negotiating, but what's actually happening is we're running that order form through all of the checks and balances internally to get the deal done on time. Got it. And then once the deal is signed, you guys are monitoring that over the next year or whatever the life of the deal is to help manage the seats as well as manage renewals and yeah. whenever that season. Yeah. Goes. So when it, it gets plugged into the system and we have integrations to all the platforms that are showing the dashboard of what the utilization looks like. And then also the renewal calendar so that parties are getting notified early when renewals are coming up. And because that's another one too, another, I think lazy sales trick is like just letting it on a renew. And 
But it's one of those things where you lose trust with your customer, actually, if you do that. So like part of what we're doing is making sure that folks know you have this much cost coming up for renewal in this quarter. Here's the different agreements. Let's get the people that own these contracts to tell us what they need this year. Add it to the shopping cart and we'll go buy it. Yeah. Yeah. The, I think, Seth, unless you have anything else on this, I think we should ask this last question here, wrap it up, that you guys for a procurement as a service is here to stay. So what advice do you have for salespeople so they can best work with procurement teams and vendors like you guys in the future? Yeah, I can only really speak for us because I know that there's a lot of different approaches, but like very, I can very confidently say the best thing to do is be super transparent. Tell us like, here's where I am in my attainment. This is what I need to do. This is, these are the things that I'm being graded on here because Again, our goal is to set something up that is going to make you look good in the end, even if there's like a small reduction in price, which by the way, if you go to the CFO, you're going to get that reduction in price anyway, right? So rather than just getting that reduction in price, can we do it early? Can we help you on payment terms? Tell us how it works at your company. And if we've never worked with you before, and we don't know, like the more you tell us, the better actually, not the worse. And like we have, we have cases where folks on our services team know the reps so well at different companies that when we show up, like we can get the whole thing done in a day. It's like, we already know exactly what we need to do. Let's just get this thing done. There's no point in dragging it out and posturing. So if you're transparent with us, we'll be transparent with you. Like I told you exactly how we get paid. We're a very transparent company and we're, we're not here to hurt you. That's not the goal. So at every, and sorry. And the notes that I got directly only had positive things to say again about Tropic. So yeah, all right. small sample size, but there's some vitriol that came through and it wasn't about you. So that was, that's good to hear. Basically every AE should be paired with a BDR and a Tropic rep. Is that <laughs> yeah. This is turning into a Tropic sales pitch. We're going to go harder on him. I can't help myself. Yeah. That's uh, all right. We invited you here. Yeah. All right. Let's talk through some of your sales background, specifically at Tropic. I think people are interested to hear this. A lot of early stage companies trying to sell without any kind of marketing, like we were talking about earlier. So can you tell us a story of closing your first deal? At Definitely. So if that's where we were at, like, before we get to the first deal, I just want to say buckle up. What I wish somebody would have told me is comfortable getting totally embarrassed. Like the first several pitches of this concept, people were like, what are you talking about, dude? <laughs> I sold to one of the very first, I think the first conversation I ever had with anybody was with Brian. Malkerson is the VP of sales. And I, he was like a friend of a friend. I was like, will you take a meeting? And I could tell he had no idea what I was talking about. So it's like, you will absolutely fall flat on your face. Like the objection handling is not written. There's no trainings. There's nothing to mock. Like you're going to make a total fool of yourself many times before it starts to click. Right. And so closing my first deal at Tropic is actually a pretty funny. I think that we face planted a bunch. We started with design partners, giving it away for free, face planted more. Then we started to really understand our personas and we started to really understand who our buyers were and you got to be dialed into that. Like the features don't matter. This is nothing new nothing that I'm saying is new, but like the features don't matter. How cool the platform is doesn't matter. All that matters is who exactly do you need to sell to and are you sure that's who you're selling to? If there's any doubt, it's not. If it's like close, but not quite, it's not, right? Like we were selling to IT and they would like it and then they wouldn't buy it. And so it's, that's not who we sell to. We sell the finance. Then we got that. It was like, cool, starting to click, starting to hear the same objections, starting to hear the same points land. And uh, I was actually in Miami working to close that first deal at my in-laws house. And it was a long road. It was like, we were, they were like, 
we need data to, you know, back up the direction that you're taking. And I'm like, shit, we don't really have any data yet. So then as a part of that sales process, we paid a hundred dollars each to like a hundred different sales reps that had left the companies that were on the list of the companies that we needed the data for to get on a phone call with us and answer some interviews. And we're like scrambling to get all these interviews in so we can start seeding this database. And we had to do that before we had our second call. So it's like, we already had the second call book and now we're scrambling to get all these calls together so that we could get the data that we, we didn't say that we had data, but we are like, we believe the future of this category is data. And they're like, great, but I need data right now. And I was like, you got it. We're going to go get you some. What was the data they were looking for? Huh? What was the data that they were looking for? They were looking for a couple different things, contract durations, seat counts, like prices, things like that on the tools that they had in their stack so that they could compare. And, uh, and yeah, we like just did a LinkedIn search and filtered on reps that like used to work at the companies that were on that list. And we got 80% of it that way through phone calls. So just hustling, like everything is hustling, right? Like spreadsheets and hustling, no CRM, right? And then we started to progress the deal and uh, it was pretty straightforward from there. We don't want to overprice or overcomplicate those early sales. Hey, we're going to, we're going to save you money and that's it. And we're going to pay you back if we don't do it. And here's the price. And that was what we did. Kept it really simple. I think that at the early stage, there's a compulsion to like, try to make it sound complicated. So it seemed like you're more established. Don't do that. It's what is the simplest, most painful problem you're going to solve? And are you solving it for the right person? And are you talking to that person or to somebody else? And that was it. And then at the end of that sale, actually, so my wife's family got this like little yappy, like dog, like I don't know, like fluffy white ones with the black stuff. Yeah. yeah. So they had one of those dogs and I was, they had just gotten her name's Paloma. I love her now, but she was making my life miserable on this call. And like, I was trying to find a room that didn't have people in it because I was at the in-laws. So I was going outside, I accidentally let the dog out and I'm in this, it was like the closing call and I was running and I kicked under this lounge chair and I peeled my entire big toenail off. It was like 90 degrees and I had to just, I'm like, this is our first deal. I have to close this. So I had to pretend nothing was happening. And I like went upstairs and my wife like figured out what was going on. And my wife and her mom were like taping my toenail back while we, while we got the verbal on the call. So that was how we closed the first deal. At some point you're already thinking, you're like, I could just throw this. I could just go back to being an account executive. What what am I doing? Yeah. And this this is after six months of getting paid zero, depleting my savings and we got to be ready to grind, man. But I knew in the moment that this would be a good story to tell someday. So I'm glad you guys asked me on the podcast. How's your toe do? Everything's fine. You never know. Sales cures all, Seth. That's what a closed deal makes the pain go away. Yeah. And the other thing that we did just as a general tactic, not revolutionary, but if you are at the early stage, were everything. Referrals were our only channel. So like close one deal. And like, as soon as we got that deal signed, we're like, great. Can I talk to these three people that you're friends with? And we just kept doing that. And we went to everybody that I could think of. And we had them all download CSVs from LinkedIn of everyone they knew. And we like wrote a little script. They would just filter on CFOs and then just went after that warm intros. That's what it's all about. It's like that. Which is a great best practice that people often forget to do. Yeah. yeah. Not just at the origin, but forever getting referrals forever. as yeah. part of the culture. I mean, like, today oh, referrals are still our best channel, actually. It's, there, there's no substitute for a happy customer telling their friend, well, that deal should close. I tell reps when they're first joining, I still have one-on-ones with every new sales rep. And even though I've handed off the sales org, I still very, feel very close to it. And I tell all of them, and I really believe like, no deal has any business closing. Like people don't want to buy anything. Usually they don't want to change their behaviors, especially right now. There's no reason for the deal to close. You have to fight tooth and nail and push that rock up the mountain every step of the way. 
The one exception to that is a warm customer referral. So if you got to capitalize on them. So on that topic, for other early stage, I mean, our listeners are early stage sales folks, leaders, reps, founders, like for those reps selling an unknown product in an unknown category, still figuring out some of those face plant parts, which often mm -hmm. really is the job of a founder, but often ends up falling to a salespeople. Kind of any advice for them on how to position something that they're still trying to work through the product market fit and trying to build that credibility? Yeah, I think that... The first question that I always have is, what is the existential problem that this is solving? Like, it needs to be solving an existential problem, especially now. It can't be a nice to have. And you might be listening to this thinking, my product only solves a nice to have problem. I would say you might be wrong. It might just be the framing, right? So to me, it's like, you got to sell the problem. Early stage reps, and I think especially sales reps who are early in their career, which is not always the same thing, they want to sell the solution. And that's wrong. Don't get on the phone and sell a solution. Don't get on the phone and talk about how great the product is. It's like demo-led yeah. meeting, which is, let me show you all the buttons. Exactly. You can yeah. tell me which ones you like. Yeah. Or attempting, especially if you're like, this is a cool product and I just joined this cool company. Look, hyping the product and the new feature releases. Yeah. I did the same thing early in my career. It was like, we just launched this new feature. Let me, that's all we can talk like, about. It was like, yeah. that was the thing that like, I'm never going to pay for that. In fact, yeah, this whole yeah. thing sucks now. Yeah. No, it's, that's exactly right. It's, we all did it. All of us did it, right? And you get a little bit older and you learn, you have to solve the problem. Like you can close a deal and never demo it. Like it has to regardless of where you are in the journey of the company. Yeah. But if you yeah. don't uncover that pain, your doesn't matter. Exactly. And the other thing that I would say, which is probably obvious, but I really struggled with early in my career is be yourself. Don't try to be a salesperson. Don't act the way that you think salespeople should act. Don't talk the way that you think salespeople should talk. Be the person that you actually are. Because these people, CFOs that we sell to, like they can see bullshit coming from 10 miles away. Like you need to lean into who you are because who you are is unique and interesting and special, right? I'm laughing so hard because I've gone through it with several different sales reps where you hire this incredible person that you like because they're themselves. They get on the call. They become this cartoon character of a salesperson. Yeah. And then after the call, you look at them, you're like, who, who was that person? Yeah. And they're like, they, I think it's something sort of a defense mechanism. Yeah. And maybe well, they're like, scary. I think I got to be who this, who people think a salesperson should be. And you're like, no, just a smart, normal person. The second like, that statement is people don't like salespeople. That car, <laughs> especially a cartoon salesperson. Yeah. You don't want to be sold to by like old Gil from the Simpsons. Like you, you got to keep it real. And it's the funniest leadership. Just be yourself. And often it's very hard. You have not went through that with, has come out the other side as themselves. But what bizarre leadership advice? Could you just be yourself? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It's the right. It, it probably took me three years. It probably took me three years of selling to like really figure out how to do that. Be myself. Yeah. And it's tough too, because if you're right, Seth, in terms of a defense mechanism, if you're yourself and you get rejected cool. and it feels like it's a personal thing, as opposed to all oh, five putting on the salesperson act. Yeah, but I, I'm you, gotta, assuming... you gotta be ready to get a million no's. That's true for everything you do, like sales, like leadership, fundraising, whatever. To succeed, you have to get a million no's and you have to just realize that it's not personal. If there were a lot of yeses, then everyone would do it. And it wouldn't be hard and wouldn't be worth it. Who was that first salesperson that you threw into this fire after all of your face plans? How did you think about your first sales hire? Yeah. Who was it that started selling? beyond you was it a leader was it a, a an yeah, so a he, was, he was uh he was one of the best sales reps at bounce acts when i left and his name is isaiah 
And he's everything about him is like the opposite of a salesperson. He's like very dour, very negative. Like when people are like getting pumped up, he's the one that's going to shut everybody down. And now he's our chief revenue officer, by the way. And awesome. Uh, and Congrats he's to him. Sounds awful. like he earned it. Yeah. Yeah. But it was like, I want, I, part of me was like, I want to hire the person they'd least expect. And like, he'd sit there and I'd pull up and they'd be like, yeah, I just don't, I don't know if we really like this. Just yeah, stop forever. And I'm like, People don't say that. And he, really what he had, though, is I'm a kid, but he's brilliant. And what he had was the ability to really listen and learn. Like he would get off of every single call and be better. Every single call, he was like, okay, miserable failure. What did we learn? Like we learned that this objection can't be overcome with this. We learned that this less messaging doesn't land. And maybe 98% of it didn't work, but we found the 2% that did. So now my next call is only going to be about that 2%. And that ability to like, brush off the pain and just be like, okay, we fail. That's awesome because now we know it doesn't work. And I wonder if that's, if it's correlated with just his personality. I think a lot of sales reps are by default optimists. So we get happy years and then we don't yeah. hear the rejection. Whereas he's more of a slightly more pessimist or realistic. Yeah, I, Unless I hear real stuff that sounds yeah. really good. The rest of this is bullshit. Yeah, I've had great success with pessimists, quite honestly. And one thing that's true about me, like with my past and my, as I've written about on LinkedIn and we might be talking about later, I failed in major ways in my life. And like that, I think has created a chip on my shoulder. That's like, what I, like, I never think I'm good, which is like very unhealthy. And I have to balance that in, in many ways, but it's, it means that I'm going to keep pushing and pushing. I can tell you that the worst performance I ever had when I was at BounceX, I was the top rep for every quarter until I got promoted except for one. And the one quarter that I was bad, this new guy came in and sat next to me and all he did was tell me how good I was all day. Like I'd get up and call and be like, oh man, he crushed it. Amazing. I can't believe that you like converted that objection. I was like, damn, I'm pretty good at this. I'll need our own personal hype. <laughs> and missed by a mile that quarter. As soon as you think you got it, it slips through your fingers like a bar of soap, which maybe so hype actually led to hubris and overconfidence yeah. and less listening and less yeah. deeply understanding. The mistake is you, pattern recognition is good, but as soon as you're like, I figured out how to do this, you do it the same way every time. And as soon as you start doing that, you start failing. There's like that curve where new sales reps don't know they don't know anything. So they only ask questions and right. start to do yeah. well. Yeah. And then they start to think that they know it all. And they stop asking questions and they go like the trough of despair only to realize like, yeah, actually now you know enough to know you don't know anything. So you better get back to asking those questions. Yeah. It's like an interesting cycle. Exactly. They say that sales is a 10 year draft. So it takes 10 years to learn that you don't actually know anything and to learn that you should just be yourself. I have one more question before we get into some of your experiences yeah. in, in, around mental health, because I know that was a hot topic and certainly going through stuff. Right. I think it sounds mm -hmm. like we're all in good places in our lives, but it can go through some darkness. But maybe back when you first hired, his name was Isaiah, who's now your CRO. Yeah. When did you make the decision to do that? What was the conviction that you had to say, let's pay up, take some career risks from this person that you really put him in this dream, right? This company you're trying willing into existence with the confidence that he would be successful, you would be successful. How did, what was the conviction that you had and what was that moment? Yeah, it was obviously driven by desperation. Like you reach a point in that early, if you're achieving product market fit, you reach a point where I used to ask my earliest advisor, how do we know when to hire? He was like, you'll know. And if you never need to hire, then it's time to do something else. And uh, so we just hit a wall where I can't handle the demand anymore. Like we need to scale. I was the only sales rep and uh, Isaiah- was Bottleneck, bottleneck around either outbound that drives fine or inbound, but there's not enough. Had, yeah, we had a pipeline. Word was starting to pick up. We had pipeline and I couldn't 
handle it. I couldn't myself. Yeah. Handle it. And, and then it was time, right? So I brought Isaiah in and we talked about the path to leadership and like a bottleneck happened again. And we, we need structures that I don't have time to build. Let's see if Isaiah can build them. And then he did. And I was like, I guess that's what the head of sales should be doing. And then we put him as head of sales. And then all of a sudden the team's too big for that. We need management. So now he's VP and it's driven by forcing functions. It wasn't, frankly, it wasn't very strategically decided. It was just, we need this now. And this guy's here and he's doing a good job. And he's only, I don't think the sales team has ever less than 110% on any quarter since I took over. He's raise, doing the, raise the quotas, David. Raise the quotas. I'm just kidding. What, had he had any leadership experience? Because part of the appeal of taking the risky first sales hire, I call it a sales pioneer. There's a sales renaissance man, renaissance yep. woman. There's a lot of different names for it. But was that, had he had management experience before? And was that part of the expectation that he would he had a path to leader. Yeah, he did not have management experience, but I tend to like screen for managerial attributes more than experience. I did at least in the early days. Now it's a little different. Like you know, hire somebody to the leadership team. Like you do want somebody that has done like the 20 to 100 million ARR journey and all that. But but he just had, he had managerial attributes and he was somebody that as we- Can you highlight those team, quickly? Not unique to him, but what, you're, what you assess for the attributes or potential mm -hmm. for leaders? Yeah. So I look for people that are first and foremost, highly competitive. And I do that for every single role, not just sales. Okay. We're, this is a wartime company, as I often say, and like, think we behave as such. And then the second thing is, does this person make the team better? Is this person interested in hitting a number? Is this person interested in helping the team get better? And it's, it's little things. It's, Hey, I tried this out in an email and it worked. Here it is guys. Like you guys can try it now. And like, listening to other people's calls, mocking with them, not because anybody told you to, but because you know it's the right thing to do. I don't know what that's called, but that's a really big one. I think that's a natural leadership quality. Yeah. As I place a lot of these type of folks or hire these folks in early stage startups, they want that potential. And I always say it's there if you demonstrate those qualities. If you don't, we're not going to promote right. you. And it sounds like that's what you did with Isaiah. Exactly. And yeah, exactly. It sounds like he hit a home run. <laughs> yeah, he's, I'm you know, sure it was an enormous amount of work and he had to mature and grow and evolve, but it sounds like. Uh, one, of, one, of the, one of the best hires I've ever made, because you know, not all of them go like, especially when you want to hire somebody at the early stage who you expect to scale. I think it's actually rare for that to work. Very rare. Yeah. Very rare for that first sales hire to last that long and continue to grow through the leadership ranks as you guys have scaled to the Sounds size. Sounds like he day. has good leadership, David. We try. We try. All right. Let's get into some real talk here for a yeah. second. Not that the rest of this hasn't been very eye-opening, but what are some of the darkest moments you've had as an early-stage entrepreneur or early-stage salesperson? Yeah. It doesn't involve your removal yeah. of your team. Was, yeah. It's hard to answer this a little more in my story. I know you guys already know. Please. Yeah. I definitely. So a life-defining moment for me it was a little over 10 years. I had... I was like deep in the throes of addiction and alcoholism and drugs and alcohol took everything from me. And I checked into a rehab with no money, $40,000 of credit card debt and arrest warrant waiting for me when I got out, which I did get picked up on. And that was like my rock bottom moment. And I think that a lot of my success has to do with the fact that I had that. And then I saw what the bottom looks like because then in early sales, I decided I never want to live that way again. Like the darkest moments I ever had, I was like, I'm not in rehab. I don't have an arrest warrant. I don't have $40,000 in credit card debt. So we'll get through this. And perspective is really key. Sales can be very dark and very lonely if you let it. And if you feel that way, you're not alone. All of us have felt that way. And that I think is where some of the strength comes from. So I think my darkest moment in sales was probably it was three years into my recovery and I was in an unhealthy relationship and 
other areas of my life were backsliding. I started smoking cigarettes again. And, and, I, and by the way, like when I do anything, I go hard. So I was smoking like three packs of cigarettes and deals weren't closing. I didn't have transparency from leadership on where we were going. And I got this in my head that this was my first real job, right? So I'm like, I might not actually be good at this. This might be a fluke. And I still sometimes think that all these years later. But like, Every salesperson does when like a deal right. pushes and you're like, ah, do I even know what I'm doing here? Exactly. Yeah. It's like somehow after all these years, people finally figured out I'm a prod, right? And all this thing. <laughs> I was going through those thoughts and I was going through those motions and it was a really dark place. And I think that a lot of the darkness comes from losing perspective and feeling like this sales job is all that matters because sales is so binary. I think that's what attracts people like us to it. It's I can go get validation from this. And I, my whole life, I've only ever wanted validation. So it's, if I'm not going to get it from you, I'm going to go take and get it from these numbers. But if I miss the numbers, it's almost the like numbers you're buying your validation exactly, that yeah. might have outside impact or influences like the macro economy or exactly like exactly and then it's, so then yeah. it's what is my worth and i realized that i was letting that perspective take too much of my self-worth for me and i started to take my self-worth back i got out of that relationship i quit smoking how did you realize that though because i when i was in those dark times not i'm not comparing myself to you in any way but like we've all gone through yeah uh, lulls in our careers where you're measuring yourself against the quantifiable revenue it's not there. It's tough to gain perspective when you've lost perspective. Like, totally. What was it for you that you were like, wait a second, my self-worth is not my number. I do have, I have an unfair advantage in that I attend 12-step meetings and we spend a lot of time talking about this stuff. But it was talk, but talking to people about it. Exactly. Too. Talking okay. to people about it. It was talking to other people and getting guidance because you can't give yourself perspective. If you could, you wouldn't have that problem. You need somebody else to be like, dude. You're doing way better than you feel. Somebody told me that and it changed my life. And what you can do is you can take validation in other ways. So that was when I first got serious about exercise. Exercising in the morning, getting endorphins going. It's like, no matter what happens today, I feel good about myself right now. And meditation became a huge part of my life. I meditated every single day, as cliche as it is, it works. Find things that broaden your perspective and like, my work-life balance, by the way, is shit right now because I'm a founder and it is what it is, but I have a baby and I have a wife and I show up for them first anyway. And that gives me perspective. It's like, even if Tropic goes belly up, which thankfully we're very far from that, I'll still have this family. And you can't let work and you can't let sales be the only thing that gives you worth because if it goes poorly, you have no worth in the problem. If you feel like you have no worth, all of a sudden you suck at sales too, right? Now you're like getting in your head before every single call, every single meeting you have is like your eight mile moment. Don't screw it up. So it's like, you got to lower the stakes and talking to other people, getting outside perspectives and doing things that are healthy for you. It's also for me, it's very tempting to be unhealthy when I don't feel well, right? It's so now I'm going to eat five cheeseburgers. I'm going to stay up watching horror movies. That's my version of acting out. It's not that bad. But it is, right? And then you just feel worse. So you have to short circuit it. You need guidance from somebody else in my experience to do that. Today, I do therapy. I'm also bipolar. I don't know if I mentioned that. So I have medication, therapy, executive coach, sponsor, 12-step program. is like, I need help in as many places as I can possibly get it. And I'm not ashamed to say that. That's the key for me. That's what gives me the perspective. It is awesome how open you are about it. Jason and I were talking about how you share that on LinkedIn. It's just like, what leaders are doing that? What salespeople are doing that? How is that? So Thank you for that, because we were talking about a little bit about ourselves and people don't know what we've gone through. Like, I'm a successful salesperson. You hide it a bit. How has it shaped the culture that you're building and how do you help your sales reps 
yeah. atropic navigates some of the stuff that can be detrimental to happiness and mental health. And yeah, and yeah, definitely. Transparency is so key and like psychological safety is so key. The reason that I share this stuff, the reason I wrote that post, you know, about the addiction stuff I've shared about mental illness and bipolar disorder that I've struggled with is because I know so many people in sales are dealing with their own versions of those things, if not exactly those things. There's a lot of substance abuse in sales. There's a lot of like party culture in the startup. And if that's hurting you, it's very easy to feel trapped in it and think I'm the only one that feels this way and just keep doing it. So I shared that so that people know there's a lot of us, right? And the way that it shows up on, on our sales team is my whole company knows all those things about me, right? So if they're dealing with mental health, they don't feel uncomfortable raising that. I need a mental health day. I've had people, not necessarily my company, but from other companies reach out and say, I'm struggling with addiction. And if you make yourself a lightning rod, like it creates psychological safety. And I think that probably the biggest thing is like, we have a very collaborative, I want to help and I want help sales culture. We don't have a puppy mill, winner takes all, ring a bell or lose your shirt type of sales culture. It's like, we know that we win as a team. And that's, I think, how the recovery ethos permeates sales. It's like, when you need help, you should ask for it immediately. The longer you go without asking for help, the longer you're going to suffer. And then if you want to close the deal, that might mean engaging an executive. It might mean engaging a board member. It might mean pulling in other people. Like, you don't have to lone wolf it. That's not the most successful approach. So I think that asking for help I feel like all the lessons from today are like the lessons you learn in preschool, right? Be yourself, ask for help. Like, <laughs> You're not in it alone. Yeah. There's, a, there's like a, this outdated pride, I think, associated with sales culture at times. And that's not the world we live in anymore. And it's not the best way to close deals. So I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic. It sounds like you're building it, but other sales leaders, right? It's another quality of great leadership is being empathetic and being able to people, the reps just forget your note. How are you? Yeah. How are you doing? I yeah. think that was like the biggest breakthrough for me as a leader that I was like, oh, I should just ask these people. They don't really want to talk about their deals. They just want to share what they're going through in their oh. lives and have someone to talk to. It's funny. I advise so many different startups and many of the founders, I end up just being a mental health coach to be like, or sales leaders. I'm like, so how are you? And they're like, no one asks. I have no one to talk to. I'm like, totally. I've been through it. It's profound. It's from now. If the best way to start every one-on-one is just check in on them. How are they doing first? And you create that psychological safety by giving vulnerability first, and then you'll get that in return. And then that's what I think creates yeah, a healthy environment. That I think is a takeaway for leaders. If you are way more vulnerable than you're comfortable being, if you just, the people on your team will do it back. And then you're like, wow, we like know each other. We trust. We have trust. We're right. a team. All right. La last question. So we get you out of here on time. You have an unfair advantage of seeing a bunch of different software tools and how they operate. What are the favorite tools that you guys have in your stack? Oh, good question. So simple as it is, I love Donut. Donut's like okay. this Slack plugin that randomly sets up one-on-ones. Like I have a one-on-one -on -one with basically every individual contributor we hire at some point because of Donut. And like how valuable to hear about the onboarding experience and get data on that, like to create that connection. That's really good. Figma, not revolutionary, but we live in Figma, obviously. Asana is our favorite project management tool. We tried a bunch of them and Asana is the one that's stuck. We use Tropic. So shameless plug. We are on <laughs> And I'm trying to, there's something else. We're using SalesLoft, but I don't know if we like really rigorously evaluated SalesLoft versus outreach. I think we just, we bought it. People seem happy with it. 
Zoom info is like crazy valuable. Again, like none of these are rocket science. I wish I had. No, that's all right. People always ask this, right? I wish I had a random one that I could be promoting. Nothing against Lever, but we were on Lever. We switched to Greenhouse. We're a lot happier on Greenhouse for ATS. And honestly, I run my entire company out of Microsoft OneNote, which is a terrible application, but all I, everything I have is to-do list. That's what worked for me. Yeah. I think that's all That's all that's come to mind. We have 100 tools. We have the same problem everybody else does. Topic, but. Yeah. Yeah. It's good though. You can relate to your customers in a very real way. Thank you so much, David. It's been awesome. Yeah. This is great. Yeah, David, thank you so sad. much. For I'm it. really uh, awesome that you guys had me on. I love how this came together. You guys are doing great. cool stuff and I'm really glad that we're in each other's network.